So our Bible reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 45 on page 50 of the Church Bibles. Genesis chapter 45, beginning to read at verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now, hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week we looked at uh, why there is suffering in the world. And this week we're looking at our response to suffering. Now whether you were here last week or not, a recap might well be helpful. Before we look at one episode of suffering in the Bible, the Joseph uh, narrative if you like, and uh, then we'll draw out some lessons from it. Now, last time we saw that God's number one priority in creating the universe, the climax of his creation, as recorded in uh, the early chapters of Genesis, was to have human beings with whom he could enjoy a reciprocal, loving relationship. As a good God, he could only create good and not evil. He does not directly create evil. However... Love, the essence of the divine human relationship, has to be freely given. You cannot force anybody to love you. Love to be love has to be freely given. And that means that God was taking a big risk in creating beings, whether they be spiritual ones, like angels in heaven, or whether they are human ones, such as our species, Homo sapiens. The risk was that they could change their minds and walk away from the relationship, they started 
their existence with. Now, God could have avoided such a risk altogether, either by not creating anybody in the first place, or by creating beings who had no choice, automatons, robotics, simply programmed to obey. They might have existed, but they would not have had an expressed love. So the first spiritual and human beings were created in a loving relationship. They had the freedom to either stay in or to opt out. And some spiritual beings in heaven, we understand, with their ringleader, who is called Satan or the devil, uh, they did rebel. And when human beings first arrived on the scene, Satan expanded his sphere of influence. Previously confined to the spiritual world, he now commenced operating in the physical world. And through doubts and deceits and actually downright lies, he managed successfully to seduce the first human beings away from God. They doubted the goodness of God. They doubted his holiness and they doubted his otherness. And Adam and Eve fell for all that. They thought life without God might be freer, less restrictive, better, more exciting. And so they did their own thing, and they rebelled. Now, a good God could not allow such deviant and disobedient behaviour to corrupt his paradise, and so they were expelled. They were left to their own devices, to roam, it says. Although God punished them by exclusion, he was nonetheless merciful to them. He could have just eradicated them immediately. After all, he said, if you do this, you will die. But he didn't. And neither did he force them into a relationship with him. What he does is give time He gives time so that they might come to their senses and admit their waywardness and return to him. But he also needs time to set things up in his creation so that he himself is in a position to be able to accept them back. They experienced spiritual death, it's true. They were expelled from paradise. But they didn't immediately suffer physical death. They were allowed time with their estrangement from God so that they might come to their senses and return to him. So many of us, it is a common life experience that we all go a bit prodigal at different ages. We think that we know better than God and we go walk about We explore the world in its alternative ways, only to come to our senses and realise God was right. And after all, it's wise to return to him and he's ready to have us back. That's what his hope was in delaying any further action. He was hoping that they might return in repentance from our ways and ourselves to his ways and himself. And by trusting in him, by exercising faith, trusting that we are putting ourselves into a reliable, secure relationship, 
believing that that's what we were designed for and we should trust him for and experience the best. And lastly, we saw how God hinted at how he would um, have to act in order that he could save human beings from their folly and sinfulness whilst retaining his integrity as a just and holy God. And we saw how in Genesis 3 that the descendants of the original human beings would one day have a descendant who would arrive on the scene and who would live, first of all, a perfect life. He would not succumb to the temptations of the devil. And how he, uh, though he was tempted, he would never succumb. In other words, he beat the devil by his perfect living. And then by his rising of the dead, because if you don't sin, you don't deserve to die. And so he defeated death at the same time. And he would be in a position to provide a cover-up, a word which means atone for. So just as God himself, through the sacrifice of animals, used their skins to cover up Adam and Eve's nakedness as they were to experience life outside of paradise, so this future descendant would save us by covering us with what he gained through a perfect life and through a risen life, a robe of righteousness, a right relationship with God, which he offers to exchange with us. He gives us a robe of righteousness in exchange for our dirty old robes of unrighteousness. What had gone so wrong could be so wonderfully rectified. Paradise that was lost will be paradise restored. And that's the big picture. And that's the picture to hold to in our minds as we live temporarily in this world and from time to time experience some pain and suffering, either directly or indirectly as consequences of human rebellion against God. So let's have a look at uh, Joseph and his experience. It takes up a massive chunk of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50, and you might find it helpful to pick up the Bible and turn to page 41 to uh, uh, chapter 37, and we'll work our way through it. There's a whole lot of narrative, but from time to time there's a real nugget of a verse which is precious and well worth remembering. So, uh, just so that we're familiar with the biblical version and not the Technicolor Dreamcoat version, which isn't quite the same, let's have a look at at this together. And then we'll draw out at the end some lessons to take away. First of all, Joseph was a guy who was really up himself. I mean, he was chosen by God for a particular role in the preservation of the people of God so that uh, eventually he could bring about his plans, but... Most people who are greatly used by God have humility. He doesn't seem to have that. So, for example, when he went to visit um, his brothers who were tending the flock, his older brothers, he comes back and tells their dad all that they're doing wrong. Now, Joseph was uh, his father's favourite, 37.3, and um, his father made no secret of his favouritism. Jacob, or Israel as he's also called, gave Joseph and him only a richly ornamented robe, 33, 7. 
and his father's favoritism resulted in his brother's jealousy and their hating him. Matters were compounded when Joseph had a dream in which his brothers are seen to bow down before him to recognise his authority over them. Well, that must have really got up their noses. So he was rather up himself. His brothers then decide they're going to get rid of him, 37, 12 onward. Joseph's father sends him off to, again, find, see how his brothers are getting on, looking after the flock. This time they're probably 60 miles away from Hebron in the Shechem area, around Nablus today. And uh, Joseph eventually finds them a little bit further away in a place called Dothan. Now, they took the opportunity to do away with this precocious little upstart of a brother. And the first of all, they thought of killing him. But then, as they thought about it overnight, an opportunity arose that enabled them to sell him to traders on their way to Egypt, 3728. And then they dipped this offending robe in some animal blood and were able to tell their father that Joseph had been kind of eaten by wild animals. Joseph, though, was in fact sold in, as a household slave to Potiphar, who was captain of Pharaoh's guard, 37-36. And by now, in the narrative, we read, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered in the house of Potiphar. 39.2. Had Joseph, in response to adversity, turned to the Lord? Had he recognised his failings and turned to God in forgiveness and enjoyed restitution and the Lord's presence in his life? We may be familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, famous line in The Problem of Pain. He writes, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Adversity had returned Joseph to the Lord, and Potiphar had noticed, presumably some combination of Joseph's ability, his integrity in carrying out his office, and his general attitude to work. And so Potiphar placed him in charge of the whole household, and it prospered, but temptation lurked. Potiphar's wife was a bored housewife, and she took notice of what we could summarise from 39.6 as a handsome hunk. And she tried to seduce him. He refused. Not because she was unappealing, but because 39.7, it would be wicked, he says. In other words, it would cause other human suffering. And... Even more importantly, he recognises that it would be a sin against God. Jesus said later, by their fruits you shall know them. 
Joseph seems to be back on track, evidenced by his life's behaviour and decisions. And so despite the, her numerous advances, 39.10, he resists. Hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. A little observation made by the 17th century writer William Congreve. In other words, she sets him up. She falsely accuses him and he ends up in prison, 39.20. A place where the pharaoh's prisoners were kept. A kind of little private prison. Again, while he was there, we read that the Lord was with him. He showed Joseph kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison governor, 39.21. And here, here again, Joseph's qualities led him to be made a trusty which I understand is kind of prison slang for a prisoner who, because of their good behaviour, is given exceptional privileges. And in this case, he's given, basically, the run of the prison. He, under the governor, is in charge of what goes on. And while there, Pharaoh had had a little wobbly, and he'd imprisoned a couple of his uh, court officials. And they subsequently have dreams, and Joseph was used by God to interpret them. For the cupbearer, it was good news. He was going to be restored to Pharaoh's court. And three days later, as predicted, that took place, 4013. Two years later, with Joseph still in prison, Pharaoh had a dream, seven fat cows and seven lean cows, seven years of bumper harvest and seven years of poor ones. Now, none of the magi, the court magicians, astrologers, could interpret the dream for the Pharaoh. And then the cupbearer remembered Joseph. This is his big chance. And again, we read, the Lord was with him. He admits that he can't understand the dream, but tell me it and my God will interpret it for you, 41.16. And he says there's going to be seven years of bumper harvests and seven years of famine. So the solution, Joseph says, is basically save 20% of each harvest, store it securely, and then when the famine comes, we won't starve. Pharaoh's impressed and puts him in charge of things. He becomes, if you like, the minister of famine. Remember we once had a minister of drought, I think, in 1976. I don't know how you managed to solve a drought. I mean, you can't really create rain, but anyway. Um, so it's, we're at 41.40 now. And he gives Joseph a new name, Saphanath Panayar. He was 30, and he subsequently had a wife and two sons whose names meant something, as they did in the ancient world. And the names he gave to his sons, and their meaning in particular, give us an insight into Joseph's thinking. One was given his name because God had made me forget all my troubles. And the other, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. In other words, he put the past behind him, and he focused on God and his future life with him. Well, eventually the famine comes and within two years, Joseph's brothers are on their way down to Egypt, chapter 42. Egypt alone had been warned about the coming famine, 
the other nations in the ancient Near East has not. And as their harvests fail, they begin to realize that their stocks are running out and they need other supplies. And so when they heard about Egypt's kind of provision, Jacob sent ten of his sons down to buy them. He left one son behind, Benjamin. He's now youngest and he's now favorite. When they arrived and Joseph uh, met them, 42-7, Joseph recognized them. But of course they were not able to recognize him since he was dressed as an Egyptian. 42.8. And he puts them to the test. He says, you're spies. Now, I'll know you're not spies if one of you goes back and gets your younger brother Benjamin and comes back with him. Meanwhile, I'll lock the rest of you up. And he leaves them to sweat for three days in jail. Then he decided to let them all go back but one. He kept him as a kind of hostage so that they would return. And notice the effect that this had on the brothers. 42.21 Surely we are being punished because of our brother and what we did to him. That's why this distress has come upon us. So Simeon is kept in Egypt and the rest return home only to discover that the money they'd taken down to buy the grain is now in each of the sacks that they'd purchased. Now that is a remarkable token of grace displayed by Joseph, but since they don't know who Joseph is, for them it is terrifying. Now eventually the famine became more and more severe and they had to return to Egypt. This time they returned to the man as they referred to him with Benjamin, otherwise he wasn't going to see them. And um, they go back with twice as much uh, silver. On meeting Joseph again, they were scared stiff when all of them except Joseph were siphoned off into another room. They feared they were going to be sold into slavery as robbers. But their fears were allayed. Simeon was released and Joseph ate with them. They had a feast. They started on their return journey again with the grain. And again, unbeknown to them, in their sacks is the money. And in one sack, there is a particular silver goblet of Joseph's. They're, of course, captured. They're taken back to Joseph, who says, if one of you has the silver goblet, I will make him my slave. The rest of you I will let go free. And then, of course, it's found in Benjamin's sack. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, writes about Joseph's strategy of alternating what he, the, the whining and the dining with uh, the threatening and scaring of them. He writes, we see the growth of quite new attitudes in the brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. The alternating sun and frost, like freeze thawing, broke them open to God. Had Joseph learnt from his experience that had taken place over many years, which he condensed into those few days with his brothers? 
as he thought the way he came back to God might be the way they too might come to their senses and be changed. Well, the brothers had every opportunity to uh, do to Benjamin what they had done to Joseph. They could have sacrificed their father's favourite once again, left him in Egypt and saved themselves. But they don't this time. Kidna again. Their response by its unanimity, 44.13, its frankness, 44.16, and constancy, the offer is repeated, 44.17, show how well the chastening work had done. Even Judah, who had been the one who was particularly keen to... uh, to sell, jo- to sell Joseph into slavery, offers to take Benjamin's place. He'll stay as a slave in Egypt so Benjamin can go free. He knows how much it will break his father Jacob's heart to lose Benjamin like he'd lost Joseph. Just as suffering has changed Joseph for the better, now it had done the same for his brothers. Things got too much for Joseph. He was bursting to tell them, and he was uh, able to do so in a private meeting. And he says to them, 45.3, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? And the brothers were terrified. They feared Joseph's retribution on them. But he says, don't be distressed, 45.5. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. There will be five more years of famine, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. God has to do that, otherwise the people of God are going to kind of cease to exist and he won't be able to work out a way of saving the whole of humanity. Well, Joseph lets them go home to bring his father Jacob and the rest of the family back so they'll um, survive the next five years of famine. Of course, when Jacob dies, the brothers are naturally worried stiff again that Joseph may now exact his revenge. And we read in 50.15, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They ask for forgiveness. When Joseph heard of their request, he wept. They were prepared to be his slaves. They knew they were in his debt. And then in the climax to the book of Genesis, Joseph says in 50.20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. Now what do we learn from this experience of pain and suffering for us today? I think there are five things. In the cistern and later in the dungeon, Joseph must have cried out in prayer to God for rescue. And it took a long time coming. He had now got the right attitude to God. If you're in a fix, it is far wiser to enlist God's help 
than to write him off, either as non-existent or that he's abandoned you. John Newton, in a letter to a friend going through suffering, wrote, Above all, keep close to the throne of grace. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near to him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping away from him. But I doubt in the early days that he fully understood what God was up to and so wouldn't have got his prayers right. Tim Keller in his excellent book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering writes, the Joseph story tells us that very often that God does not give us exactly what we ask for. Instead, he gives us what we would have asked for if we had known everything he knows. Never assume, he adds, we know enough to mistrust God's ways or be bitter against what he has allowed. In those early days, Joseph knew simply he should be a good worker and morally upright. He left the rest to God's hands. And time and again we read, and the Lord was with him. Secondly, in that time, much of what God was up to was hidden. If you considered all the coincidences and accidents, of, well, we might call them providential, but they could look like accidents and coincidences, in order to get this teenager to become basically the Prime Minister of Egypt. I mean, just think of the start. Jacob sends him off to see his brothers again. He knew they should be in Shechem, but they aren't. And he manages to fortuitously meet somebody who happens to know where they've gone. And then when he is there, and he's in the cistern, fortunately the Midianites go by. And instead of being killed, the opportunity to be sold into slavery occurs. And then... How come he got bought by Potiphar, captain of Pharaoh's guard, rather than became one of the many thousands of brickies on the pyramid project? How came he ended up um, in prison with the upper echelons of life rather than with the riffraff? Thirdly, were his brothers, Potiphar's wife, and doubtless others wrong to do what they did to him. Well, of course they were. But being aware of the distinction between just and unjust suffering can be immensely helpful to us. We need to know that sometimes we justly suffer for our own sins. And that stops us being proud and arrogant. But we also need to know that some of our suffering is the fault of others. And that way, we know that we are not just simply rubbish and wallow in self-pity, but rather we're enabled to get on and live life in this fallen world as we should, as God intended. Fourthly, we must, do all, we must also never think that we have really messed up and our lives are ruined for their duration. No, his brothers must have thought that. He himself must have thought that when he was in the system, when he was being dragged off to the slave market. 
You must have thought something like that. You know, I've failed big time. His brothers must have thought that when they reflected, when they come to realise all the grief they had caused their father. Pain and suffering was very real for Jacob and for Joseph. But God used it redemptively. Tim Keller again, you cannot destroy his good purposes for us. He is too great. He will weave even great sins into a fabric that makes us into something useful and valuable. But of course the big question is, how can God weave together their harm and his good? How is it that God is completely in control of what happens in history and yet exercises control in such a way that human beings are responsible for their freely chosen actions and results of their actions? You get an insight into the problem in Acts 4, 27, 28. Peter is praying. He says, <clears throat> Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, anoint, who, who, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, God has it all planned. But this adverse act, this wrong act, is carried out by human beings who make that decision. Now, no one can claim to know exactly how both truths, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, fit together. They are what we call a paradox, the appearance of a contradiction, an apparent incompatibility between what, is, what are two apparent truths. They may seem unreconcilable truths, but they are undeniable truths. The contradiction is not real. It's only apparent because of our limited knowledge as observers. So our paradox is said to be a mysterious paradox, using mysterious in the sense of uh, unrevealed, hidden from us by God. But we might see more clearly, like Joseph did, at the end of the process, rather than the beginning. But of course, as far as the grand plan of salvation is concerned, we've been told how it's going to end and how it's now operating. And finally, Joseph's ability to see the hand of God behind even bad things in his life enabled him to forgive. In that, he was the forerunner of someone else. Centuries after Joseph, there was another who was rejected by his own, sold for silver coins, denied and betrayed by those closest to him, unjustly imprisoned and sentenced to death. He prayed for the suffering he faced to be removed, but he knew his suffering was part of the Father's plan. And to Pilate he said, You have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And then finally, after that period of wrestling, he says, Father, your will be done. And he dies for his enemies, forgiving them, because he knows the Father's redemptive loving purpose lies behind it all. 
His enemies meant it for evil, but God overruled it and used it for the saving of many lives, for eternity. And he is now in heaven and rules over history for our sake, watching over us and protecting us. So often in the Bible, God shows he is going to get his salvation done through weakness and not strength, because Jesus will triumph through defeat and will win by seemingly losing. In the same way, we get God's saving power in our life only through the weakness of repentance and trust. And so often, the grace of God grows more and more through our difficulties than through our triumphs. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today for any who are particularly in a time of pain and suffering. We pray that uh, they would turn to you in wholeheartedness, enlisting your help and support to see them through this time, as you doubtless prompt them to analyse themselves and to assess things which you highlight, we pray that people would have the humility to repent of. So that suffering which is not of their own uh, causation, we pray that you would give them grace to see it in the light of the big picture, that uh, you will be with them both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.